Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of If These Hills Could Talk. I'm your old buddy, Tennessee Brando. Thank you guys so much for being with me. Um, it's been a week ago that uh, I lost my guitar hero, Mr. Gary Rossington. And uh, I'm just now getting to where I can actually talk about it. And I thought uh, I would make a podcast episode talking about Gary Rossington and his influence on me as a guitar player and uh, on what it's like growing up in the South and being a fan of Leonard Skinner and all the things that comes with that. And uh, so that's what this episode's about. It's, uh, it's about me discovering uh, Gary Rossington for the first time and uh, what a life-changing moment it was for me. So I'm going to tell you all the stories behind how that came to be, and then I'm going to get in the weeds talking about what it's like being a progressive Southern boy whose favorite band is Leonard Skinner. Um, I'm sitting out here in my garage at the moment, uh, making this one. So if you hear this noise, that's my cigar lighter, <laughs> giving my Monte Cristo a boot, a boost. And, uh, yeah, I've gotten into cigars lately, pretty hard and heavy. Uh, thanks to my good buddy, Mike McGill. Uh, what are your friends for, you know, <laughs> does it give me another habit? Um, uh, but it's, it's a habit that I really enjoy. And very quickly before we go and talk about Rossington, uh, cigars have actually helped me tremendously. It's actually reduced my drinking, uh, and I don't smoke cigarettes. Uh, but I just come home from work and I have a cigar. I just sit out in the yard, out in my garage. I have a cigar, uh, you know, and you really have to commit to it. It's like a, you know, you're not, it's not like you're just smoking a cigarette real quick, trying to get you a few puffs and run back in. You're, you're actually sitting there, you're committed to it. And, uh, you're just unwinding from the day. And so uh, I feel like that cigars have actually, in some weird way, um, kind of been a little bit of a, I don't know if lifesaver is the word, but it's definitely uh, definitely helped me to pump the brakes on some other bad habits that I had. <laughs> so uh, thanks to Mike McGill for getting me into these, and this Monte Cristo I'm smoking is pretty damn good. But anyway, getting to uh, Gary Rossington. I, uh, back when I was younger, believe it or not, I never wanted to be... Well, I never thought for a second I'd be a podcaster or be a, a TikTok star or any of those things because those things didn't exist back in the 90s. Um, all I wanted to be when I was a kid growing up, and this is going to come as a shock and maybe a laugh to a lot of you, but I wanted to be a pro wrestler. And I had my name already picked out. I was going to be the big-time Brandon Lee. And uh, I was going to – I really believe had I went on with it that uh, John Cena wouldn't have had his run. So he kind of owes me a, a debt of gratitude for staying out of his way and letting him – go to the top because uh had i been there uh, he would have definitely seen me and uh <laughs> i would have <laughs> uh, anyway I, I, i'm bullshitting you but it um i did i wanted to be a pro wrestler and my favorite band or my favorite uh tag team uh was the midnight express and a group called the fabulous freebirds and the fabulous freebirds used to walk out with a song called bad street usa well a friend of mine uh actually told me wrong he said uh he said, that's Leonard Skinner playing that song. It wasn't. Leonard Skinner played the song Freebird, where the, where the tag team got their name from. And uh, so I wanted to know who that was that uh, inspired that band to, to call themselves, the, or that group to call themselves the Fabulous Freebirds. Um, around that same time, a buddy of mine went to church, and he got saved, and his mom told him it would probably be in his best interest to get rid of all of his rock and roll cassette tapes. And I don't know if you guys remember back in the day, those cassette tapes, um, those decks we had, actually, there's one out here in the garage not far from me, uh, and the cassette I'm talking about may be in there, uh, 
but there was old uh, triple deckers, you know, you'd pull out the drawers and you had your cassettes in there. I love those things. Uh, they need to make a comeback. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I go up there to my friends and I proceed to look through all of his, uh, cassettes. He had, uh, he had them all, he had them for sale. So I buy them and I never will forget. I bought Leonard Skinner's greatest hits at Skinner's Innards one. I bought ZZ Top's Greatest Hits, Aerosmith's Greatest Hits, I think the Eagles' Greatest Hits, and Metallica Kill 'em All. Believe it or not, I listened to all uh, of those cassettes first. And then one day, I just happened to be looking at that Skinner cassette, and I saw the word Freebird on it, and I said, oh, shit, that's, this is where, the, yeah, that's right, this is where the fabulous Freebirds got their name. I got to check this out. And so, uh, uh I did. I popped that into my Walkman and began listening to it. And at the time, there was a girl that uh, I had a crush on that rode the bus with me. And I would sit with her, but I just never could pick up the nerve to ask her out on a date. And I hadn't seen her in a couple of days. She hadn't been to school and wondered where she went. So I thought, I'll listen to this uh, cassette tape as I walk down to her house. And I'll just kind of walk up on her porch and hit on her. That was my plan. Uh, so I, I took off walking. And it was around October, and the reason I know that is because when I come home and started digging into Leonard Skinner, I found out they passed away in October, on October 20th of 77. And so um, I uh, walked down to her house, which was actually a pretty long walk. It was kind of a cold and rainy-looking day. I've got that Walkman in, and as I'm walking, I'm listening to Sweet Home Alabama. I'm listening to That Smell, What's Your Name, songs like that. And I'm going, yeah, I've heard these songs before. I just didn't realize that's who it was doing it. Well, I get down to the girl's house, and when I walk up on the porch to knock on the door, I look in, and the, the, the house is empty. There's nothing in it. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, is, has she moved? What's happened? So I started to walk back down to the porch, and this guy hollered. He said, hey, buddy. He said, uh, they moved. And I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah, they moved to Ohio. Well, this was pre-Facebook, pre-MySpace, pre-social media days, so it wasn't like I could just look her up on there. She was pretty much gone forever. And to this day, I've never laid eyes on that girl. I, I've not even been able to find her on Facebook or anywhere for that matter. But she completely disappeared from the story, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, this is completely unedited, by the way. My podcast is, is as cheap as they come. I don't edit anything. I'm just sitting here having a cigar, drinking some coffee, and talking to you about Rossington. But anyway, he said, man, you want me to give you a ride back home? It's fixing to rain. I said, no, man, that's okay. Um, I said, I'll just walk. And as I'm walking back up the road, Freebird comes on. Perfect timing. And I heard that slide guitar cut through those speakers in my ear. And I like to lost my mind. I thought, that is the greatest sound I've ever heard in my life. That is, that is the greatest noise that I've ever heard a guitar make. Who's making that? How are they making it? I've got to learn how he done that. And then, of course, you know, when Ronnie comes in with the line, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? It was perfect with the, with the story that had just happened to me, that had just unfolded in front of my face. This person who I had a crush on has now left. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was the perfect words to be hearing at that particular point. Well, as I'm walking, sure enough, it started raining. And suddenly the rain started to come down harder. And now I'm trying to walk to hold that Walkman, wrap it up in my flannel shirt, and not get it wet. And... Um, uh, I'm walking along and uh, all of a sudden that solo hit. And when that solo hit, I just took off running as fast as I could. It was like the most, just, I don't know, it was a moment that I'll never forget in my life. And years later, I heard Al Cooper, the producer of Leonard Skinner, say that when he first discovered Skinner, he said, uh, 
And he heard the song Freebird. He pictured every teenager in America just putting their head down and running straight into the wall. And he was right. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to run through a wall when I heard that. And I wanted to know who made that sound and how the hell they did it. So I go home. I start looking in that cassette tape, reading the liner notes, and uh, wanting to know who it was did that. And I saw the name Gary Rossington. And I was like, oh, man, I got a, and Alan Collins and Ed King and Steve Gaines. And I thought, damn, I got to figure out how to do this. And I actually went down to the pawn shop. And uh, the guy that worked at the pawn shop was very knowledgeable on guitars and music and stuff like that. And I said, man, I'm looking for a, uh, I, said, I think it's called an electric guitar. I said, and it's uh, it's shaped like this. And I held it up in front of his, a picture of it from his face and he, in a magazine. And he said, yeah, it's a Gibson Les Paul. I said, well, I want one of those. He said, well, if I find one, I'll, I'll, if, you know, I get them in from time to time. Just keep checking back with me. My first guitar was a K guitar. It was kind of shaped like a Stratocaster, a white guitar with black pickups, uh, a little low K amp that just had two knobs on it, like volume. And then it had volume. Actually, I think it had four knobs. It had volume, then it had high and low, and then it had clean and dirty. And you just crank it over to dirty if you wanted to get some distortion. And, um, but I, my, my, my heart was stuck on that Les Paul. Uh, around that time, my mom got me Freebird the movie and a, a video called The Tribute Tour uh, on VHS cassette tapes. And uh, man, I just fell in love with that and watched it religiously. But there was something about um, Gary Rossington that I just was drawn to him more so than, I mean, Alan Collins is amazing. I love all of Skinner's guitarists. They're every one the greatest in my opinion. But Rossington, something about him just the way he stood. And I love the old black and white footage when he's standing there and he's got the cigarette between his fingers and he's just playing the hell out of his guitar. And something about the shape of a Les Paul, I was like, man, I gotta have one of those. And around that same time of, you know, wanting to be a wrestler and all that stuff, uh, I had been writing poems in my notebook. Uh, and I just kind of felt weird showing poetry to my uh, friends because back then, you know, they, they kind of did to poke fun at kids that wrote poetry and stuff like that. So I was a little bit embarrassed to uh, talk about that. And I was writing songs and strumming them in the style of Hank Williams Sr. because that's who really made me want to write a song. But it was Ronnie Van Sant and the Leonard Skinner Band and Gary Rossington that made me really want to learn how to play guitar and be in a band. Once I heard that, I really was set on wanting to do that. So it was my birthday in May of 1997, and my mom got me tickets to see Leonard Skinner at the World's Fair Park in uh, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. It was on the 20 tour. Back then, when they was doing the 20 tour, they had a big screen, and on the big screen would be Ronnie Van Zant singing the song Traveling Man, and Johnny would sing it, the duet with him. I got down there that day. Uh, it was probably uh, uh, like the, the gates opened at 5, and I was there at 2 sitting there at the front of the gate, dying to get in. And uh, I'm going to be 100% honest in this whole podcast and tell you exactly what I was doing. I was a 17-year-old kid, and I was sitting there uh, waiting to get in with my big Confederate flag on my lap. Uh, and I wanted to get front row and stand there on the front row. And uh, so uh, they finally opened the door and uh, or opened the gates and let us in. And I ran as fast as I could and got right on the rail and just would not let go of it. I had a death grip on that rail. Now, my mom took me, and she said that uh, 
she said that uh, the, 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 just the music that they was playing through the speakers before the show started was too loud for her to be right up front. So she said, I'm going to go back here somewhere and find some place to sit because you can sit anywhere you want to in the World's Fair Park. Mom's like, I'm going to see if I can't find a chair or something to sit in and just get back a little bit further away, but you have a good time. And I was with a buddy of mine. And uh, a guy named Corey Stevens actually opened the show, and then Paul Rogers comes out. Now, I wish that I had have actually paid closer attention to Paul Rogers than I did at this particular point, but I was just dying to see Skinner, and I didn't really care about anything else. And there was this real pretty blonde girl came up to me. She had some of the nicest breasts I've ever seen in my life. And uh, she says to me, she says, can I stand in front of you? And I was like, no. And she's like, please? She's like, I came to see Paul Rogers. I said, well, I came to see Leonard Skinner. She said, well, I'm not here to see Leonard Skinner. I just came to see Paul Rogers. And uh, she said, I can't see over your head. You're too tall. And I said, well, listen, I said, I've been, I've been out there since 2 o'clock waiting to get in here, and I'm not giving up my spot. I said, I'll scoot down for you, but there really wasn't room to scoot down. And she just, She's like, but I want to be on the rail. I want to be on the front. I want to see Paul Rogers. And uh, I was like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And uh, she's like, listen, she's like, Paul Rogers is my hero. She said, I've waited my whole life to see him. He's all I've ever wanted to see is Paul Rogers. I'm thinking, well, all I ever wanted to see was Gary Rossington, you know, so we're even. <laughs> and uh, she said, I'll tell you what, she said, I promise if you'll let me stand in front of you, she said, you can stand in front, I'll stand in front of you. She said, when Paul Rogers gets done singing, I promise you, I'm leaving. I'm not even sticking around for Skinner. I will leave. And uh, I was like, I don't know. She's like, I'll even rub my ass on you if it'll make you feel any better. And of course, saying that to a 17-year-old kid, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to cave. And so I let this girl get in front of me. And she completely marked out over Paul Rogers. She was in tears. She was crying. She was having the time of her life. And yeah, she did rub her ass on me some. And I can't say I didn't enjoy it. But um, when the show, when Paul Rogers ended his set, just like clockwork, just like she said, she spun around and she, she was crying and she was like, thank you so much. And she grabbed me and kissed me straight on the lips as hard as she could. I was like, wow, you know, this, this has definitely turned into something I didn't expect to happen at this show. And she walked away. And I just sort of turned and watched her work her way through the crowd and watched her walk all the way out of the damn World's Fire Park. And I'm going, How, did that fucking just happen? And I'm just going to be blunt with you. And honestly, that was really technically my first kiss ever. I was a late bloomer. And so I was sitting there going, God, did that just happen? That, this, is, this is crazy. Something about the whole environment, though, the, the, the music being played, the guitars, the drums, the, the, the speakers, and that smell in the air. It had just lured me in so hard before Skinner ever took the stage. But uh, they finally took the stage. And when they did, now at this point, they still had, you know, Gary, of course, but they still had Leon Wilson on the bass. They still had Billy Powell on the piano. They had Ricky Medlock and Huey Thomason on guitars. And I, I was hoping Rossington would be right in front of me, but he wasn't. It was Medlock. And uh, I just sat there, and I was so... In, intrigued and in just just in complete in a trance but I could not take my eyes off Rossington I, I couldn't quit looking at him because by this point I had learned all the stories about the plane crash and everything else and I just could not look away from it and um, I kept raising my flag up in the air more on that later and Johnny Van Zant would come over every now and then and point at it and give me a thumbs up and wave at me and I was like I was just so into it and uh then it comes to the part about traveling, man, and I saw Ronnie on the big screen, and when I heard Ronnie Van Zandt's voice cut through them speakers and I saw him on that big screen, it was like somebody took a bucket of water and just dumped it on top of my head. Um, that's as close as I've ever came to being saved in my life. Um, I think that that was the moment that I was saved. It was just, it was unbelievable. 
And I broke down crying. And this old biker, hippie biker dude, just threw his arms around me because I doubled over the rail crying. And this, <clears throat> this biker dude just comes across and hugs me. And when he does, he's got a tattoo on his forearm of Ronnie Van Zant's face. And I'm sitting there looking at that tattoo going, that's the coolest tattoo I've ever seen. I want one one of those days, and I have one. <clears throat> For those of you that have seen it on my arm, I've got the same tattoo that old man had. But when they get to the end, they play Freebird. I'm watching Rossington the entire time. And Leon Wilson came over, and he had these he had this big old hat on and these glasses that were blinking in front of me, and he got down on his knees in front of me playing. And, but when they did the bow at the end, um, when they did the bow at the very end, uh, Rossington managed to be standing in front of me. And we're all clapping, we're all applauding, and he just looks down at me and makes eye contact with me. He looks me dead in the face, and he just sort of pumps his fist at me. And uh, I remember thinking, that's all I want to do for the rest of my life. That's it. I want to do what I saw them do. Um, and I, I never looked back. I never thought about ever being a pro wrestler again. I never thought about doing anything else in this world again. I never thought about getting a job and feeding my family. <laughs> I never thought about a damn thing. I just became absolutely obsessed with uh, with playing the guitar and playing it like Rossington. Um, and then fast forward to 1998, I took a job at a Walmart, and I worked there until I saved up enough money to buy a guitar. I went to the East End Pawn Shop in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, and they had a 1981 Gibson Les Paul Standard in there. And I bought it for, he had it priced for $800, and I asked him if he'd take seven, and he said, yeah. And the minute I walked out of there with that guitar, I quit my job. Because that's all I wanted. I just wanted the guitar. If I got the guitar, I was done working. <laughs> and so uh, I would meet up with guitar players who would play fast. And uh, they, would, they, they would play as fast as they could. And when I tried to play as fast as I could, I just sounded like a kid trying to play fast. It didn't sound good at all. I would listen back to cassette tapes of us. We'd record rehearsals. And I'd, I'd just say, man, I sound like garbage. So I just started focusing on Rossington's leads. And I said, I'm just going to learn Gary's leads because they're very melodic. You could almost whistle them or sing them. So I started learning the leads to Tuesday's Gone and Simple Man and That Smell and Give Me Three Steps and Cry for the Bad Man and On the Hunt and Give Me Back My Bullets. and That's the solos I zeroed in on. And I let my other buddies figure out how to do the Ed King and the Steve Gaines and Alan Collins parts. I never could play that slide. I've, I've, I'm a shitty slide player. I play slide like George Thorogood just real raunchy and raw and usually use a beer bottle. Um, I never really was. I know I can play the Freebird so the Gary's part, but it don't sound good. I've never been able to master that slide like he did. But that was that moment, that life-changing moment, that life-altering moment where that's all I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And if it wasn't for Gary Rossington, just sort of looking down at me and giving me that stamp of approval, uh, I don't know if I would have kept going with it or ever thought about it anymore. But it was that moment. Um, now, I, I seen, ended up seeing Leonard Skinner a total of seven times. I think the last time I saw him might have been in 2001. I, saw him, I never saw him after Leon Wilson passed away, the bass player. Later on, Billy Powell passed away, and even Huey Thompson passed away, and even Ian Evans, who they got to, fill in, uh, to replace uh, Leon, even he passed away, and... It just got to a point where I couldn't go anymore because I didn't want to see uh, the band without those guys. And uh, But 
I never could bring myself to shit on Gary Rossington for any of it. Um, I didn't like a lot of the new music. Now, I will be honest with you. There's a couple of the modern era Skinner songs that if they didn't have the name Leonard Skinner on them and someone just handed this to you and said, hey, this is some band, you know, out of out of Kentucky or Tennessee, check them out, uh, I'd probably say that's a pretty good song. But uh, when you put the name Leonard Skinner on it, it's really hard to live up to Ronnie Van Zant and Alan Collins and all the original members. But I never could bring myself to shit on Gary Rossington because I understood his way of thinking and the way he was going about it. Um, Rossington was there to pay tribute to his brothers that died in that plane crash, and he was trying to carry their dream on. And that's what he always said. I'm doing this as a tribute to them, and I'm trying to carry it on. And as time went on, you know, they would uh, have members uh, play in the, the original members' spots that I didn't care for, drummers I didn't care for. I'm still an Artemis Pyle fan all the way. Uh, and I, I I didn't want to see it. And some of the new songs they wrote just flat out pissed me off. Uh, I hated some of the more right-wing political songs that they wrote uh, because when I listened to Leonard Skinner, I didn't necessarily hear, and I, and I got to be honest with you guys too, for those of you that are older than me that was like, I was there, you probably have a better take on it than I did. But I would hear songs like Saturday Night Special and I would think that's that's a pretty progressive viewpoint. And I would hear songs like Things Going On and I would hear songs like Lend a Helping Hand. Um, and I would hear songs where he would say, you know, like and Things Going On, until they make it right, I hope they never sleep at night. You know, uh, I, I'm not saying that I viewed Ronnie Van Zandt as the most progressive liberal in the world, but I definitely uh, could relate to him. And he wrote simple music that down-to-earth people can understand. And he inspired me to try to write simple, down-to-earth music that people can understand. The bluntness of Ronnie Van Zant's lyrics is what inspired me to be as blunt as I possibly could. Uh, but there's a whole lot about being a progressive in the South. And uh, your favorite band being Leonard Skinner, the minute you say that in certain circles, people start looking at you sideways and they want you to talk about the rebel flag and they want you to talk about all that. And I would recommend watching the documentary if I leave here tomorrow on Netflix. You'll hear Rossington explain it. And you'll hear, uh, and, and, I, and I've heard all the different band members have a slightly different take on it. But um, Rossington explains, and Ronnie Van Zandt explains in an interview that that was back at a time when, uh, you know, uh, Southern culture was very popular. And, uh, you know, we even ended up electing Jimmy Carter as president. It was at a time when uh, all the shows on television was Southern and country-based shows, and it seemed like a there was a whole lot of you know Southern and country pride ripping through the country. And Leonard Skinner was a band from the South. They were a rock and roll band from the South. You had the Grateful Dead out in the West. You had you know Motown up north, and uh, you know you had the Texas scene, different scenes going on. And the record label, as a marketing tool, decided to put that Southern battle flag. Uh, on that music and Ronnie Van Zandt even says he says it's a, it's a it's a gimmick it's a it's a it's a gimmick representing southern music I really don't necessarily believe that Ronnie Van Zandt or Gary Roston were racist people and I don't believe they had any any bad intentions uh flying that flag um years later uh Gary Roston there's an interview you can find on CNN he come out and denounced the flag and they removed it for a while, and then their fans got pissed and protested, and they ended up putting it back. Um, half of it, anyway. But they if you'll notice, they eventually phased it out. They even went back and edited all the album covers that had it on it. They went back and edited a lot of stuff and phased that out. Uh, and Rossington said, we never meant to hurt anybody. 
uh, we, we, you know, it, we, it was, it was something the record company did as, as a way to sell us as a Southern band. Um, and I, I really believe, uh, that the guys in Skinner at heart were good hearted people. I don't think they ever had any mean spirited intentions, but, uh, I told this story on a TikTok a video. Now this happened around 98. This happened around the time that I got the Les Paul. Uh, this happened, I, I did, I did have the Les Paul at this point. So it had to be 98 or 99 when this happened. But, uh, I had met a guy at work, uh, a black man and I had met him there and he was a little bit older than I was and he played drums and, uh, he was always talking about how he wanted to come over and watch my band play. Wanted to watch his practice, might maybe get in and jam a few songs with us. So I invited him over, but at the time he didn't have a car. He, someone would drop him off at work every day. And so he said, man, I'd love to come over, but I just don't have a ride. Well, he didn't live far from me. I said, man, I don't care at all. I'll come down to your house, give you a ride, bring you over. And I said, well, you can jam with us and watch us jam. He said, okay. So I go pick him up, and when I get almost back home uh, with him, I realize that, that same Confederate flag I had at that Skinner show was hanging on my wall. Now, ironically, it was hanging right next to a Jimi Hendrix poster, uh, and I'm wearing a New York Yankees hat. So I was definitely conflicted <laughs> in my life. But I realized at that moment that, you know, I've been trying to, to, to say this flag means Leonard Skinner and this flag means Southern rock, but I do know deep down that it, it means something different to this guy. And that was one of the first times that I was confronted with that. Like, uh Oh, like now I'm not explaining it to another white kid. Now I'm not explaining it to an old hippie biker. I, I'm explaining it now to someone who has dealt with it and someone who's been hurt by it. So I said to myself, should I run in the house real quick and like distract him and go take it down and hide it from him? Or should I just tell him about it? And I'm honest as the day is long. So I just said to him, I said, hey, there's something I want to tell you before we go in here. I said, I, I said, you know, my favorite band's Leonard Skinner. And I said, I, I said, I do have a Confederate flag hanging on my wall. I said, I'm not a racist person in no way. I said, I never meant it to be that way. I said, it, to me, it's just, uh, it's just Southern music. It's all it ever was to me. And I could see his tone change. I could see his whole body change from it. Uh, and he just looked at me and said, oh, man, I, I don't think nothing of that. He said, I see that thing all the time. He said, I don't, I, I don't even think about it anymore. I said, well, I just wanted to tell you. I didn't want to. I said, if it offends you, I'll take it down. He said, no, you don't have to. But I noticed his demeanor changed around me. I noticed his whole, whole the way he was carrying himself changed around me. He came inside, met my parents. They were super nice to him and. Funny story on that, after he left, later, I said to my mom and dad, I said, you know, I said, that's the first time a, a black dude's ever been in our house. And mom and dad said, huh? I said, we didn't even pay attention to it. They said, we, he just came in, we just started talking to him, we didn't even really think about it. Which goes to show you the kind of people my parents were, they didn't even think about color. I didn't either. But now, for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm that flag means something different. And he comes in my room, and he sits down on the side of my bed, and we're playing. And I know, and I happened to be standing where the flag was. Now he's been wanting to see me play guitar and hear me play guitar for all this time, and he never looked in my direction. He just pretty much started at the floor the entire time, and that deeply disturbed me. It deeply bothered me deep down. So when it was over, I took him home, and he he didn't hardly say two words on the way home. And I wanted to bring it up, but I couldn't figure out how. I didn't know the right way to go about talking about it. So I drop him off, and uh, some time passes, and I keep saying to him, man, you need to come back uh, and watch us. Well, I got ahead of myself a little bit. What happened was 
I was so disturbed and hurt by what happened that when I came home, I took the flag down off uh, my wall and I threw it in the garbage. And my dad was never more happy that I did. He he was he applauded me for throwing it in the trash. Dad was like, Dad's like, buddy. He's like, I hate that flag. He's like, get rid of it. He didn't want it in my room. And I tried to hang it on my window one time, and Dad's like, you are not hanging that on your window. People outside are not going to see that that thing's hanging in here. And I used to say, Dad, it just means Leonard Skinner. And he'd say, no, it don't. And uh, I threw it in the trash, and my dad applauded me for it. So then I kept telling my buddy, I was like, man, come back and watch us. And he kept making every excuse in the world as to why he couldn't show back up. And I just kept saying, but man, I really, you didn't even play with us. I said, you really didn't even get up and play. I never got to hear you play the drums. I said, please just, just come back one more time. I said, we'd love to have you. And I said, you can get up, you can play some drums with us. I said, I would really love it. I said, just, just, just please come back. Finally, he relented and said, well, all right, if you'll give me a ride. And so I go over to his house and pick him up again. So we walk back in my house. And uh, when we uh, get inside, uh, he's not saying a whole lot. We walked in my room. He's looking at the floor and I'm talking and I'm getting stuff set up. And finally he glances up and he looks at that blank space on the wall. And when he realized it wasn't there, he began looking all around the room, like looking up at the walls all around. Cause I had my, my room looked like a damn shrine to rock and roll. And, uh, I had the coolest posters and records and pictures hanging on my wall. And I don't think he had noticed that, uh, I did have a picture of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy on my wall. And um, he looks around, he realizes that's not there, and he just starts smiling. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't address it. He doesn't He doesn't say, oh, I'm so glad you took that down, or thanks, man, or nothing. He just begins smiling, and he almost laughs. He says, yeah, man, let's jam. And he gets behind the drums and plays, and, and we just laugh and talk and have the best jam session ever. And... uh he jammed the fuck out of some Skinner. <laughs> he really did. And, um, but it was at that moment that I realized that that flag did hurt other people. And, uh, now I'm not going to say that that was my last run in with the flag. Um, it's, 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 it's around us everywhere we go in this part of the world. And I played in every redneck dive bar in the world that probably should have had chicken wire behind me. And, um, um, so there's probably times I played in, in places where they were hanging and there's times that I played in places where people, you know, had them with them. And, um, I've played shows where I've looked out and seen someone waving one. Um, so there's people out there that can say, well, I seen you open up for Molly Hatchet and uh, Jimmy Van Zant, and they was some in the crowd. Uh, and I, and I, and I understand, but that, that, that was, that was the moment in time when I realized that it hurt people. Um, now years later, uh, I was making the zombie town music video and what a lot of people don't know about that music video of mine is that I, uh, had an entire like story and screenplay written around that video. I had, I had biographies written for every character in that video and I had a storyline for everybody in that video. And my character was a backwoods redneck drug dealer in the character, in the, in the, in the play, in the screenplay. And we were setting up his, like what would be his house. A buddy of mine said, hey, let's let's hang up this flag. And I said, no, nah, I don't really want that flag in my video, man, really. And uh, he said, well, but your character is a real, you know, sleazy, dark character. And he's a, and every redneck drug dealer around here has got these. And so for the context of what I was trying to show, 
that's the only reason why that I, I allowed that to be in there because it was representing the culture and the and and the, the the part that we have and I would argue that there are television shows out there uh like Justified and different different TV shows where that flag is in the background and that flag is being used because the characters in the stories are representing what it this part of the world and this culture but I in no way endorse it I in no way condone it anymore and it's something that I I can no longer defend and just call it Leonard Skinner um it's something that I that I, it's took me a long time to uh, to put things into perspective and get a better understanding of it, and um, you know ever since the emergence of Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump made I feel like he came along and picked at the sores that we had tried to that we had tried to heal. And there's been so many, so much debate about the flag being taken down and removed from certain places. And I just want to say that I'm all for it being taken down from anywhere. And uh, I don't want one in my home. I don't want one around me. And uh, ever since I became Tennessee Brando, talking the liberal and progressive viewpoints that I have, uh, I don't get booked on as many shows as I used to get booked on. A lot of the promoters that used to talk to me won't return my calls anymore. Uh, a lot of the uh, venues that I always had a regular standing gig at for a year, I, there was venues that I would book for a solid year ahead of time. I'd get up with them in January. We would just map out the year. Those places stopped talking to me. Um, some of the people that owned those places deleted me from Facebook. Uh, and I'm sure it had to do with what they heard me say on TikTok and on Midas Touch and different places. Uh, I'm never going to be one that's going to sit and scream cancel culture. I'm never going to uh, scream and bitch and say I should be allowed there. Uh, if I'm being dead honest with you guys, I really uh, probably don't belong in those places anymore. And uh, I'm just, now I'm to the point where I'm just looking for places that will allow me to play the music I play. And I've always said this too, I have never went out to any venue that I play in and I have never went off on political rants on stage. Uh, I've never grabbed a bullhorn like John Lennon and just went off talking about things. I play music and I play to the audience in front of me and I let the music speak for itself. Um, I've never... Uh, tried to use another person's venue as a platform for my political or religious viewpoints. I've never done that. But um, it, I, I can definitely feel that it's been used against me. Um, and I can, uh, I can definitely tell that there's a lot of people that, that wants nothing to do with me anymore, and I'm perfectly okay with it, and here's why. I don't know what Ronnie Van Zant would be saying today had he lived. I don't know what kind of person he would have ended up becoming. He might have been just like his younger brothers and might have been singing ridiculous songs for Ron DeSantis. And if he was, I could tell you that I never would have got him tattooed on my arm. Uh, but uh, I always argue this about Ronnie Van Zant. He was an open-minded guy who stood up, to, stood up for what was right. And uh, there is the story that a lot of people have, have a hard time hearing. A lot of people have a hard time hearing me say this, and they'll, they'll argue it to the, to the death Um uh, over it, but uh, the the flag was taken down on the Street Survivors tour. Ronnie Van Zant talked about it in an interview. You can find it; it's there. He talks about it, and he says, "I'm afraid now it's drawing the wrong kind of people out to our shows, and that's not the kind of people we want to be associated with." He said that in '77, when they brought it back, uh, brought the band back years later. I, I really believe that they looked out at their demographic of people and said, "This is who buys Skinner albums, and we better appeal to these people." and uh, so I believe that's why that it ended up sticking around. 
But anytime I've ever heard Rossington talk about it, uh, he always speaks about it in that fashion. And uh, I think that he and I would, if he was sitting here beside me and could talk about it, I think we would pretty much be on the same page about it. I don't think any of us, any of us white Southern boys that loved Leonard Skinner and loved some good old Southern guitar picking, I don't think any of us ever meant anything bad. I can tell you this, that 17-year-old kid that went to that show uh, was not intending to hurt anyone with that. I really wasn't. I was just ignorant. And I, I I hadn't grew up yet, and I hadn't learned yet. And I've argued that Ronnie Van Zant hadn't grew up yet either. Ronnie Van Zant was 29 years old when he died. I'm 40. I'm about to be 43. Um, and I think about Ronnie, and I think about you know what what he might have grew up, and how he might have how his viewpoints might have changed over the years. I don't know. I can't say for sure where he would be, but that's not important to me. Um, what's important to me is learning how to stand on your own feet and figure things out for yourself, and learning how to let go of things. Uh, the great comedian Doug Stanhope one time said, uh, tradition is nothing more than a dead man's baggage. Stop carrying it. And uh, that's how I look at that flag. It's a it's a dead man's baggage. And when people says that it's their heritage or it's their, you know, it's not your heritage. It's a stain on American history. Um, it's a time when our country was divided. It's a time when... Uh, when the South was trying to break away and they, they used to, you know, call it, they'd say, well, it, we weren't fighting for slavery. We were fighting for states' rights. But then when you ask the question, well, what were the states' rights for? Uh, it always goes back to owning a slave. And so I really, to be honest with you, you know, uh, now I have friends who disagree with me on that. I have friends, I'm sure, that probably still have them sitting around at some point in their house or maybe have tattoos or whatever the case may be. Um, but I can tell you this, even back then when I was a young kid wanting tattoos, I never considered getting that because deep down I knew that it could potentially hurt someone else. Um, I know that everybody looks at that differently and I know it's a, it's a touchy subject in this part of the world, but I really feel like the only way that we can ever move past things and start to heal is to is to lay down a lot of things and lay down a lot of ideas that we were taught and understand that we were taught this, you know, by uneducated people who passed down uh, uneducated, ignorant ideas to us. Uh, and I don't think, I'm not saying that our families did that on purpose either. I think one of the biggest things really for me is one of the reasons why I would always try to find a way as a kid to justify it is because I couldn't picture my ancestors, my my grandparents and their their grandparents ever being the kind of person that would that would that would back what the you know the white supremacists and the Nazis carrying that flag uh, uh, believed in. Um, also, uh, you know, back when Charlottesville happened, the one thing I pointed out to everybody was like, okay, now if that's your heritage, if the rebel flag is strictly your heritage, or if it strictly just means Leonard Skinner or whatever the case may be then why are you allowing Nazis to march beside you with the Nazi flag? Why are you allowing that to happen? That's not your heritage. That's everything your grandparents fought against. You should be kicking their ass. But, uh, but uh, that's, um, that's, that's always going to be a debate in this part of the world, and it'll always hang around. But I can tell you that it's one thing that won't be passed down to my children. And when I do talk about it to my children, I'll pretty much talk about it the way I've just sat and talked to you guys about it right here today. But um, Gary Rossington was a guitar player who I admired and his style was a style that I admired. And uh, it was so melodic and so good and he had such fucking good tone and he had so much, I mean, so much control over his instrument and he, 
he he wasn't flashy, you know. He wasn't a flashy player. He wasn't trying to uh to upstage nobody. He just was complimenting the song, and I always felt like that his parts complimented the song very well. He helped tell the story of the song with his guitar. Uh, you know, a lot of guys, if they'd have been given a solo section and Tuesday's Gone or Simple Man, would have tried to get every fast guitar lick they could possibly get. Uh, at one time, you know, just, just roast their guitar as fast as possible to say, look at me, look what a badass guitar player I am. But Gary helped Ronnie tell that story and helped paint that picture and helped create that image in your head of what Tuesday's Gone was all about. What Simple Man was all about. And I think he did it better than anybody. And he just seemed like a really good-hearted, down-to-earth dude. Uh, do a, do I listen to the modern era Skinner albums? No, and as a matter of fact, here lately I've I've learned that if you go to Spotify and put Skinner on shuffle, you're going to hear a lot of the, you know, modern band songs are going to come on, and you're going to skip those. Uh, but you know, I go back to Leonard Skinner, and I'm reminded of my teenage years, and I'm reminded of of my love and enthusiasm for music, and nobody ever made me love it. Nobody ever got me more enthused. Nobody ever got me more excited than the Leonard Skinner band. And when it comes to guitar playing, nobody got me more excited than Gary Rossington. You know, uh, one of the first serious bands I was ever in was nothing but a Skinner tribute band. That's all we did was Leonard Skinner. And I said, guys, can I just have Gary's solos? You guys take the rest. I just want Gary's parts. And I really sat and worked hard at getting those parts down. I'm in my garage, and uh, it's got a tin roof on it, so the rain's starting to come down. You may hear that in the background. But it's a nice morning, and I'm really enjoying this cigar. I'm really enjoying uh, this cup of coffee, and I'm really enjoying talking to you about Gary Rossington and what it means growing up in the South, being a Southern boy that loves Leonard Skinner but also has a lot of progressive viewpoints. Um, on the documentary, If I Leave Here Tomorrow, Artemis Pyle says I'm a liberal uh, hippie, uh, you know, and I always will be. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I will be too. I, I, I cut my hair years later. But I will always be that uh, that Southern liberal hippie at heart. Um, you know, it's uh, I'm I'm not ashamed of of the good things that that have that have came out of the South. I'm not ashamed of the of the music that we've contributed to the world, and all the culture that we've contributed to the world in 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 positive ways. Uh, the great Tyler Childers uh, talked a whole lot about. You know, there's so much more in this world that we could talk about uh, when it comes to the South. Uh, there's so much more we can talk about than just that flag. You know, there, there's so much more here. Uh, no one ever retires and moves up north. You know, they always come down here. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. And the great Patterson Hood one time said something. I was standing in front row when he said it, and I, I loved it. And if you ever really want to kind of understand how I see the world, go listen to the drive-by truckers, listen to the song, The Southern Thing. Right before they played the song, The Southern Thing, one night Patterson Hood said, you know, he said, if you ask... I can't remember how many people he said, but like in other words, I'm kind of paraphrasing. He said, if you uh, if you ask 10 people what it means to be uh, from the South, he said, you will hear some things that will be so disgusting and so just so d disturbing that you'll never want to hear them say it again. And you'll hear other things that will absolutely confuse you and leave you scratching your head trying to figure out what it is. He said, and then you will hear the most beautiful thing that you've ever heard in your life. And that is the duality of the Southern thing. You know, uh, that's what it means. And he's right about that. Um, but, uh, 
Gary Rossington, uh, his death really, really messed with me, and uh, I'm not over it. I probably never will be. To me, it was definitely the end of an era. Uh, I made a Facebook post about it, and then I just recently made a, actually right before I started this podcast episode, I made a little TikTok about it. This is the first time I've ever been able to talk out loud about it because it hurt like hell, you know, uh, to see him go. Um, but I was watching some of his interviews and I've seen him a million times, but I, I just fall down into a well of listening to him talking. I saw an interview where he was talking about the plane crash and he was talking about how that after the plane crash, every day of his life from October 20th, 1977, pretty much till the day he died, he said, I'd never stopped having dreams about it. He said, I dream about him every night. He said, I used to wake my wife up in the middle of the night from my bad dreams and she would have to talk to me until I went back to sleep. He said, finally, it got to the point where I just stopped talking to her about it. I just stopped waking her up. I just accepted it. I don't know what's on the other side, and uh, I'm not much of a believer in the God of the King James Bible. I don't like the way he's portrayed, and I don't like the way that the conservatives have turned him into the bully prick that they've turned him into. But if there is something on the other side to all this madness, uh, my only hope for Gary Rossington would be that one night he had another dream about that plane crash. I had another dream about Ronnie and Alan, and I would just hope that they came and took him on over to the other side. And I would hope that he's uh, with them on the other side where he belongs. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've been listening to Skinner all week long. And I had me a really good cry at one point, but then there really wasn't much to cry about. Because I listen to him play his solos and I say, damn, man, that guy got to play for all those years. He got to play Ronnie Van Zandt's songs way longer than Ronnie Van Zandt ever got to play them. You got to understand that songs like Freebird was still practically new when they died. Put this in context, okay? The, 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 the original, well, not the original, but the, the, the pronounced Leonard Skinner album came out in 1973. Now, Freebird had been recorded years earlier in Muscle Shoals, but... So like, say, 71, I think, is when it was first recorded in Muscle Shoals. And it got released on a major label in 73. And they die, and uh, Ronnie dies in 77. So the song is about, you know, six years old at that particular point. Now, I think they had been playing it in clubs prior, but I'm talking about from the time it was recorded. Now, just go back six years ago. That six years ago was like 2017. Think about that in the context of what a short window of time Leonard Skinner made that iconic body of work. And think about how that, you know, after that, uh, you know, think about the fact that, okay, if you added up the number of times that Ronnie Van Zant sang Freebird or the number of times that Ronnie Van Zant sang Sweet Home Alabama or Simple Man, uh, at the end of the day, guys like me that have played in bar bands for the last 25 years, guys like us probably played, we definitely played his songs longer than he ever got to and probably sang them more times than he ever got to. And, uh, you know, I've, I've outlived him now. Uh, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm about to turn 43. Uh, I've got a 21 year old son who in a few years and no time flat is going to outlive Ronnie Van Zant. Um, and you know, Rossington got to, to travel the world, play his guitar up to the very end. And he got to play the songs for years and he had children older than Ronnie, you know? Uh, so there's not a whole lot to cry about when it comes to Gary Rossington. He got to live one hell of a life and he got to play his parts and he got to carry that music on. And, uh, uh, one thing he said that, uh, that I, 
I struggle with is he said that when he passed, he hoped the band carried on. <laughs> I thought, damn, I don't know if I could, if I could stand there and see that. And I don't necessarily want to know that I would even want to be around the crowd of people that would probably be at a Skinner show today. But for Gary Rossington, part of me may go if they do another, if they do a show without him and they come around my part of the world, I may just go and stand in the back for Gary Rossington because that's what he would have wanted us to do. And part of me, while it's hard for me to accept that, it's hard for me to consider that Leonard Skinnerd. Uh, and it would be painful as fuck to see someone standing there playing a Les Paul in his spot. Um, but at the same time, I, I might go set through that just so that as a, as a final nod to the man that inspired me, um, I never made it to the level that he made it to. I never achieved the fame or the success that he achieved, but I lived a lifetime playing my guitar in every backwoods dive bar in this part of the world. And, um, I wouldn't trade that life for nothing. Uh, not too long ago, I went to pick up my son from the babysitter. And uh, I walked in, I saw this girl that I worked with in a factory over 20 years ago. Turns out she was related to the babysitter. And her husband was sitting there. And uh, she said, yeah, I've, I've known Brandon for years. He, me and him worked together at the furniture factory years ago. She said, my mom retired from there. And uh, the guy looked at me in kind of an assholeish way. He said, yeah, man, just think. If you'd have stuck with that and hung with it. He said, you'd be retired now. And I said, yeah, you're right. I would be, but I wouldn't have got to live the life that I lived. I wouldn't have got to experience the experiences I experienced. And I wouldn't have got to play my guitar like Rossington did. And, you know... Uh, there's people my age that have had a lot more success and live in a lot nicer places and drive a lot nicer cars and, and have a much bigger bank account. But uh, I went out there uh, playing my music, and I did it with a few quotes going through my head. One of them was from Waylon Jennings. I always live by this. Waylon Jennings said, there's always one more way of doing things, and that's your way, and you have the right to try it at least once. I always went around with that with that line stuck in my head. But there was another line that I went around with in my head too. It was something I heard Gary Rostin say on Freebird the movie back when I was a teenager. And here's where I'm going to close. He said, we just had this dream in our hearts and we were going to die trying. And if we died without ever making it, we would have died happy because we knew something was there. And no matter how bad it got for me and no matter how many hard times I endured, and there's definitely room for uh, for podcast uh, episodes about my life in those dive bars. I've been uh, I've had guns and knives pulled on me. I've almost been ran over. I've had to be snuck out the back door to keep from getting shot. Um, I've uh, I've played in places where I should have had chicken wire. As a matter of fact, that Gibson Les Paul has uh, got a chip out of the headstock because I knocked a hole in the ceiling of a bar I was playing at, playing Freebird. I jumped up in the air during the Alan Collins part, and I knocked a hole in the ceiling, chipped my guitar, the headstock. And I've also got a uh, 
a scar on the front of that Les Paul where a guy hurled a beer bottle to the stage and it busted right on my guitar, cut my hand. I bled all over my guitar and uh, I kept on playing. And people bought me beers after that. Man, that's cool as shit. He was playing while he was bleeding. I can't believe he kept playing. He was bleeding. And if someone had asked me, why are you, why are you keeping on playing for her? Why are you keeping on doing this? I would have said, well, I just got this dream in my heart. And I'm going to die trying. And if I die without making it, I'll die happy because I know something's there. So all I can say to Gary Rossington, wherever he's at in the universe, is thank you because it was worth it. It was worth every minute of it. And, uh, you know, I go out there to this day and I, I'll pull out that Les Paul and I'll, I'll play it the best to the best of my ability. But the best of my ability is mimicking Gary Rossington. And any solo that you hear on one of my albums that I take, if you break down my solo in Zombie Town or Cumberland Gap or The Bloody Bucket or uh, any of the songs where I took a ride on it, uh, Ronnie Van Zant never wrote a bad song, uh, song for Dixie. If you listen to any of those songs that I wrote and played guitar on, um, I'm mimicking what I heard Gary Rossington do. And I'm thankful that I passed through this world at a time when Gary Rossington was playing his guitar. And I'm glad that I got to see it firsthand. And I'm glad that it offered my life. I really am. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it back or trade it for nothing. And uh, as long as there's a breath in me, I'll be out there playing somewhere, wherever they'll still let me do it. Uh, because I think that's that that part of Rossington is the most admirable. The fact that he just would not back down and the fact that he just would not stop and he wouldn't keep, he just kept on going. You just got to respect the shit out of that. I do. So uh, I finally, th this episode's been therapeutic. To talk about this while I'm having a cigar out here in the garage and it's raining, it's been very therapeutic to talk about it. And that's what this podcast is, really, folks. I don't go to therapy. You know, I just make a podcast. And so uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And always remember that you can find me on social media pretty much anywhere and everywhere. Uh, if you go to my link tree on my TikTok bio, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Patreon, and Threadless, the merch store. By the way, as of right now, the all the T-shirts are $12 on there, so uh, go out there and uh, find you something if you want to. I appreciate your all support. I appreciate y'all supporting the podcast. And I don't uh, – th th this podcast has been very grassroots. It's been, it's, it's been very organic. I don't even promote it or share it as much as I probably should, and I still have hundreds of viewers and hundreds of comments and messages come to me all the time. And so uh, I'm very humbled and grateful for all of you. And uh, – you know, now the next time you see me play guitar, just picture Gary Rostin in your head and you'll go, yep, he's dead ripping him off. <laughs> but uh, the great Carlos Santana one time said, if you only take from one man, it's called stealing. But if you take from many, it's called research. And so I definitely researched my music and I borrowed from a lot of other players too. I borrowed a lot from J.J. Kale, borrowed a lot from Neil Young. I borrowed a lot from David Gilmore and Dickie Betts. And, uh, so there's a lot of uh, Hubert Sumlin, John Lee Hooker. There's a whole lot of other players that I robbed from too. But Rossington is that main ingredient. He's the steak on my plate. <laughs> and anything else is just a little bit of seasoning and sauce. 
But thank you guys so much for listening to this. And uh, long live Prince Charming, man. Long live Gary Rossington. He was the last of the street survivors. He was the, the last man standing. And uh, he will have my respect until I'm old and gray. So uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'm going to get off here and probably sit and listen to some Skinner or watch some videos of him playing. And I hope you guys have a good week. So until next time, this has been If These Hills Could Talk. I'm Tennessee Brando and Rossington. Just rest easy now.